Okay, so here we are in part 25, which is the last part of this particular series. So, this week ends our study of Genesis 1-11, to and next week starts a new quarter with new classes. And so, you have to sign up for a new class starting next quarter. Um, I will be teaching one of those classes, and it'll be a continuation of this class, essentially. So, uh, I'm going to be teaching of Genesis 12 to 50 next quarter. And so it's quite a bit uh, faster pace uh, than taking 25 parts to do Genesis 1 to 11, then taking 13 parts to do 12 to 50. So 25 parts to do 11 chapters, and then 13 parts to do 38 chapters. Um, so uh, it'll be a little quicker pace. And essentially it's going to be about the life of... Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, those four patriarchs. But the focus is going to be um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So um, that's going to be what I'm going to be teaching. There will be other options, of course. Um, And then uh, eventually, um, I found out this week that after that, I'm going to be teaching the book of Revelation. so from the beginning to the end. Uh, so, but next, but so next Sunday is a new quarter, uh, a new set of classes, and I'll be continuing on in Genesis uh, in that quarter. Okay. <clears throat> so um, let me let me just uh, for the last part of, uh, of last Sunday of Black History Month, I want to go through uh, another person uh, who I consider to be a, a great man from history. Uh, Booker Taliaferro, Washington, usually known as Booker T. Washington. He was born into slavery at the very end. Um, so he, he was kind of the last generation of uh, African-American leaders that was born into slavery. Uh, he was born in 1856. He was an educator. Uh, he established and founded his own college. He was an author and orator. He was a a trusted advisor to multiple presidents of the United States. Um, Between 1890 and 1915, he was the dominant leader in the African-American community. Um, He was, as I said, he was the last generation born in slavery. He was a little boy when the the Civil War ended. Um, And he was the last generation that was born in slavery and then was a boy of kind of a leading voice for former slaves and their descendants. Um, he was a proponent of African-American businesses. He founded a business league for African-American businesses. Uh, he founded the Tuskegee Institute, um, a historically black college in Tuskegee, Alabama. Um, and he was the key to forming a coalition uh, of uh, African-American leaders. And also, he, he, he was... He was a great uh, builder of, uh, of coalitions, and he, he formed this coalition between African-American leaders and the church. It was one of the key things that he did. Um, and then also philanthropists and politicians. And his long-term goal was to build economic strength in the African-American community um, and strength and pride by focusing on self, self-help and education. He really focused on education. And so uh, he wrote an autobiography, which I also recommend. Uh, you should definitely read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, and you should also definitely read the autobiography of Booker T. Washington. Uh, it's called Up From Slavery. 
And I just put a quote, I pulled a quote from his autobiography here. Uh, this is what Washington said, If no other consideration had convinced me of the value of the Christian life, the Christ-like work which the Church of all denominations in America has done during the last 35 years, by which he means 1865 to 1900 when he's writing the autobiography, for the elevation of the black man would have made me a Christian. So that's a quote from his autobiography, and he's talking about the witness of the church, the, the actions of the church um, in his experience as a black man in America after the Civil War. <clears throat> so, great man of history, uh, worth getting to know. Uh, so, what we look, what will we learn today? So we're gonna we've uh, we've been through uh, verse by verse through Genesis one to eleven that gives us this perspective, and now we're trying to apply it to. Uh, situations that we could encounter in our lives today. So there's two possible cultural perspectives, and we'll talk about what those are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, and to one, from one of these perspectives, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. That's to the uh, essentially the Jewish perspective. The cross of Christ is foolishness from the Greek or Gentile perspective. And so we're going to look at two examples in the New Testament about how the Holy Spirit prompted different apostles to approach different groups of people based on their worldview. Uh, one will be Peter's, Peter's sermon in, uh, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. He has a Jewish audience with a Jewish worldview. And at the end, there are uh, people that are saved through this sermon of Peter's. And then we'll look at uh, Paul's sermon at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens in Acts chapter 17. That's a Gentile or Greek audience with a Gentile or Greek worldview. And of course, some sneer, but also some joined him and believed at the end of that sermon, which the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to give in Athens. Um, and then we'll talk about which one of these worldviews uh, most closely aligns with what we see in contemporary America. So which, in other words, which approach do we need to take um, with most people uh, that we're going to meet in our daily lives? And then we'll talk about, uh, at the end, I'll t hopefully I'll have time to talk about an application within the church. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So first, we want to do a little review. So in part three, uh, we, we did, first we talked about the foundation of the biblical worldview. Uh, which was a review of what we had gone through for many weeks before. The God of the Bible created everything, including people, uh, and he's sovereign over his creation. Um, and people created in his image, th therefore, are different from the rest of creation. So there's this hierarchy. There's God above everything, and then there's people that are made in his image, and then there's everything else that's not made in his image. There's a hierarchy there. Um, and men and women all have, therefore, very high value um, because everybody's made in the image of God. People are made in the image of God. People are also made particularly for a relationship with that creator. Uh, and then we, so that was the beginning, that was the, that's the foundation of how we see people. That's one foundation. The second major component of how we see people is because of the fall. We see through... Um, starting in Genesis chapter 3, but, but very fully explained by Paul in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6, is that because of the fall, we have sin in the world, and all of Adam's descendants are born with a sin nature. And so every man and woman that we encounter needs salvation. 
uh, and everyone alive today then falls in falls under these two very important facts. First of all, everybody's descended from Adam, so we're all one race. And second, everybody has fallen in Adam and therefore in need of salvation. So infinite value or very high value because created in the image of God, all one race descended from Adam, and all in need of salvation because all are born with a sin nature. Those are the critical elements of who we are as human beings. Uh, and we get all that from, uh, we get a foundation for that in Genesis 1-11. to And so then we want to apply what we learn about who people are to this contemporary problem of racism, which is a manifestation of the particular sin, a particular manifestation of the sin of partiality. And all sin is lawlessness and rebellion against God. Um, and so that particular sin of racism, par- partiality, is an act of rebellion against God and lawlessness. Um, and so the solution that the Bible gives is repentance, followed by obedience to God, which is only possible in Christ. Uh, and so if we really want to solve the contemporary problem of racism, the answer is to do the work that we're assigned, um, that Jesus assigned his disciples at the very beginning of the church to make disciples because there is unity in in Christ. And so uh, we went over the last time these two facts. One is a biological fact that all humans are one race, and then we're going to get to the fact, the spiritual fact. So there's a biological fact and a spiritual fact that we went over last time that we're uh, Adam's race, the human race, there's only one race. Um, Acts chapter 17, which we're going to look at more today, says that from one man he made every nation. We went through this, What this is I borrowed from AIG, Answers in Genesis, the seven seas of history, which go through the, the historical and biological fact that we're all descended from Adam and Eve, and more recently from uh, Noah and his sons, but also this, the Bible's description of history also talks about a spiritual fact, that there are two spiritual races, and we got into that last time. So first of all, we're a created race, so... Uh, we have Genesis 1, creation of men and women, uh, so we're a created race. Um, but we're also a corrupted race. Uh, that Originally everything was made very good, Genesis 1.31, but then we had the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So we're a created race that is corrupted. Uh, we're a fallen race. Um, and Romans 5, uh, Paul talks about the fact that through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. Then there was a catastrophe, uh, the flood. Um, God looked at the, um, the evil of man on the earth, and he decided to blot out all but eight people on the ark. And so the eight people on the ark from whom all of us are descended were a rescued remnant. And so we're a rescued race. All of us are descended from those who were rescued. Um, just a few people, eight, were saved Uh, on the ark, and we are descended from those eight. We're a rescued race. Uh, Then there's the confusion of the Tower of Babel where God scattered people uh, across uh, the the world. Uh, So we're a scattered race, scattered into different people groups and cultures by the action of God at Babel. Um, And so that's the historical fact. So we went through that historical fact, and we took great pains to show that uh, everybody is descended from those sons of Adam, or son, uh, Adam and Eve, and then Noah and his sons. 
that was the biological historical fact, but there's another fact um, that's even more important than the historical fact, and that's the spiritual fact that all humans are divided into two races. And those that division is not based on superficial external characteristics. Uh, notice that in the two spiritual races we talked about, the kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, um, the kingdom of light is full of people from all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, and the kingdom of darkness is also filled with all sorts of people from every racial and ethnic background. Uh, it's What matters is the direction in which they are racing. Are they racing towards the kingdom of darkness, or are they racing towards the kingdom of light? Two races, one and two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light, and there is no third. Um, and so then we talked about Christ, that... Um, um, that God sent uh, Christ to be a man, the incarnation, uh, to die on a cross. Um, and then we talked about a couple of the verses that, ta- that show that there is a spiritual inflection point then. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then the fact that the Bible describes that saved race, as a, those that are saved, as a race. Uh, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God. That's how the Bible describes those who are saved. And so this is the spiritual idea of two spiritual races. Um, And then the cross, we have uh, Paul's further description in Romans chapter 5 that through one man death came, but through the, the, um, the righteous act of one man, Christ, justifies all men, and through the obedience of one, many were made, um, uh, will be made righteous. Um, So that's the cross, and so there's a saved race. So spiritually, spiritually now, you have two races. You have a saved race in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2 says this is by grace through faith, that people are saved. And that's one spiritual race. And then we talked about, well, what's the other spiritual race? And so when Jesus was in his earthly ministry... He talked about this fact that there are two, two groups of people. Um, and he talked about a narrow gate and a wide gate, uh, and that there are a few that go through the narrow gate, and there are many that go through the wide gate. Uh, and then he talked, that was in Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about his second coming. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so Jesus is talking about his second coming, and all the angels with him, um, and then there's going to be a separation, he says. Sheep and goats is how he describes them. And at the end of that passage in Matthew 25, verse 41, um, Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is also, spiritually, there's a lost race. So spiritually, there's a saved race. And spiritually, there's a lost race. Uh, And we find out about that... um, uh, the fate of that lost race in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, um, and anyone who's not, whose name is not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a lost race. And so when we look out at the people we know, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members who are not saved, they're in this lost race, and the Bible tells us where they are headed. They're headed for being thrown into the lake of fire. 
Um, and so this should stir in us compassion, and it should stir in us action. Um, because we see where these people that we care about are going. People that are created in the image of God and therefore uh, of very high value. Um, they're headed for being tossed into the lake of fire, according to the scriptures. Now, uh, there are different ways that you can explain that to people. Um, some that are more likely to convince than others. However, remember that a person that is not in Christ is spiritually dead. And spiritual things are discerned by the Spirit, and the only way that they can discern spiritual things is to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a mystery there, then why does God need us? And so the easy answer is, of course, he, he doesn't need us. However, he has called us to, be, to participate in this process. And so out of obedience, we do participate in the process. And so we know, we've read in the Bible what, where, these, where these people, these valuable people, people that we care about, where they're headed, um, and they don't see it. And so um, God, of course, he can save who he chooses without us. But the Bible explains that we're commanded to make disciples. So uh, the final C is uh, consummation, so uh, where we are headed in the future. Uh, described in the book of Revelation, uh, I looked in a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, uh, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, in Revelation chapter one, uh, 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. So that's where we're headed at the end of history. Christ's second coming, new heavens and new earth, no sin, no death, no pain, no suffering. Um, that's the end of history as described in the Bible. Um, and so at, at that point, there will only be one race. Uh, the Lamb's race in the new heavens and the new earth. There's only one spiritual race, too, uh, the Lamb's race. Um, no longer any curse. Uh, the throne of God and the Lamb and his bondservants will serve him. Uh, his name will be on their foreheads. They're his, his people. Um, no longer any night. They won't need a light because the Lord will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. That's the end of history. Yes? Can you explain again the consolation? So the consummation is the second coming of Christ, and so there's a whole series of uh, uh, events described in the book of Revelation that uh, accompany the second coming of Christ, uh, the rapture, the tribulation, the thousand-year reign, and finally the great white throne judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. So, yeah, that's, that's the um, revelation in a nutshell. <clears throat> so... What does all this tell us? So we have these, this biological fact, and we have this spiritual fact, and so when we look at a human being, what, what are we to think? Um, well, first of all, I think we need to look past the, the superficial, um, look past the genetics, look past the, 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 the outward appearance of a person. Um, look at the person's mind, needs, heart, cares, hurts, spiritual condition um, in 
First Samuel chapter 16, Samuel goes to anoint a new king, and he's got all the sons of Jesse lined up. And he looks at the firstborn son of Jesse, and he's a big strapping lad. And, um, and the Lord tells Samuel something very interesting. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so this is a call, I think. This is an important thing for us to internalize. Uh, we should think of people and look at people the way the Lord does. And so we need to look at the spiritual condition as the most important thing about that person. Um, and so Satan has a way of distracting. And so uh, Satan would love for us to look at the external appearance and be distracted by all kinds of things that the world talks about and the world uh, obsesses over. But the Bible tells us we're supposed to look at people's hearts and their spiritual condition as the most important thing about that person and not be distracted by the things that Satan wants to say are important because those things, according to the Bible... Don't look at his appearance. Look at look at his heart. <clears throat> so, we talked about, at the end of class last time, um, this idea of the ministry of reconciliation in Second chapter, Second Corinthians chapter 5, that we were once of the kingdom of darkness. Now we're in the kingdom of light, and God describes us as ambassadors for Christ back to that kingdom of darkness. People that are stuck in that kingdom of darkness, making an appeal uh, begging on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Those of us who are saved out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light, going back to people that are still stuck in that kingdom of darkness and making an appeal on behalf of Christ that they be reconciled with God before they get to that point where they're tossed into the lake of fire. Okay, uh, and then we talked to, about unity in, in Ephesians chapter 4, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There's a unity in Christ that people, we are people from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different ethnic people groups. But once we're in Christ, we're one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And, uh, but there is a diversity, I want you to see, that is celebrated here in Ephesians chapter 4. And that diversity is the diversity of gifts that he's given each one of us. Everybody's been given some different spiritual gift that's supposed to be used for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up to the body of Christ. That's the diversity that is celebrated in scriptures. Diversity of spiritual gifts within the church. So if you see somebody that's serving in a certain way, that's something that the Holy Spirit says should really be celebrated. You should really celebrate the gift that the Holy Spirit has given that person. Not what they look like on the outside. You should be celebrating what gift they've been gifted by the Holy Spirit and how they're exercising their, their, their spiritual gift to equip the saints for service. Um, and, and at the end of this passage, the proper working of each individual part, each one of us that has been given a particular role, a particular gift by the Holy Spirit, each one of us doing our role within the church, that's what causes the growth of the body. Um, that's how the, the, the scriptures describes uh, unity in the church. <clears throat> and then uh, Ephesians chapter 4 comes after Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, which gives us the background and the foundation for unity, which is 
uh, the sound doctrine that is explained in, in, ten, in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, and he explains, Paul explains, that the unity which is in the church is by the action of the Lord Jesus Christ, an action completed in the past, his work on the cross. That's what gives us unity. Um, and so um, I'm quoting from um, a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called The Basis of Christian Unity. But he says this at the end of his, uh, his exposition of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, we must get rid entirely of the notion that the Ephesians are being exhorted to produce or to arrive at something. The Ephesians are not being called to, to make unity in the church by their own power. Because that's a disaster. We as human beings don't do the unity thing very well. We, we don't. Just look around at the, the world around us. People are divided in so many different ways. When people try to, uh, to create unity based on their own strength, their own power, their own intellect, it's a huge disaster. What the Bible is telling us is the unity that we have in the church is built on Christ, the work of Christ. And that is a finished fact, something that he's already accomplished, not something that we have to, in our feeble efforts, arrive at or build or produce. Uh, and that's really good news, that, that we have unity in Christ that doesn't depend on me and my, my efforts. What a, what a disaster that would be. But it's, it's based on Christ and his finished work on the cross. And therefore, we can have real good confidence in the unity that we have in the church. Okay, so that was last time. So uh, now we've got to do the new stuff. Um, so I want to talk about two particular applications the Bible tells us about that we can look at that can help us when we approach people with the gospel in 21st century America. So looking back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's take a look at this passage. So this is Paul writing to uh, the church in Corinth, and starting in verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So I want you to notice that the cross of Christ, the, the preaching of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's a stumbling block to Jews, those who have a worldview that's steeped in, um, in Judaism, that understand the Old Testament, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. And we're going to talk about how that is and why. And to Gentiles, it's foolishness. Okay, so we're going to look, take a look at two sermons in the, in the uh, New Testament, two sermons that illustrate this point. First one is Peter's sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So what was the audience 
who was Peter talking to in Acts chapter 2? Well, I, so, so yes, so the Bible tells us who his audience were. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men. So these are devout Jews. So they would have known the scriptures. Devout Jews, that's who he's talking to. And where are they from? They're from every nation under heaven. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So people that were born Jews and people who had converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So people from all over had come for the Passover to Jerusalem and they were still here for Pentecost. And so they were devout Jews who would have known the scriptures and they're from everywhere. That's who the audience was for Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. So, let's take a look at how Peter goes about, how does, the, how does the Holy Spirit prompt Peter to preach to this particular audience? So, turn over in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, and let's take a look at this sermon he preaches to this particular audience. And then we're going to look at how different a sermon by Paul is to a completely different audience. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, um, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So take a look, men of Israel. So this is who he's addressing his audience. And he's addressing his audience, um, and he tells them, first off, that this Jesus is attested by God. Notice, he doesn't try to explain which God. They know who God is. These are uh, devout Jews. He doesn't have to try to explain who God is. He knows his audience. They know who God is. He just starts out by saying, Jesus is attested by God, the God you know. He doesn't have to say anything anything more, just attested by God. Uh, the miracles that were performed were performed by God, uh, through God, which God performed through him. And then it was God who raised him up again. Um, so they have a background. He assumes their background. He preaches the sermon knowing that they understand what he's talking about. He doesn't have to explain who God is. Um, then he continues, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Uh, Christ in Greek means anointed one. Uh, The Hebrew is Messiah, um, which means anointed one. Same thing. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. So once again, 
we see he, he knows his audience, House of Israel. He's talking to Jews, a Jewish audience here. Um, and then he, ref- he says that God, who they know from the scriptures, has made him both Lord and Christ. And so God has made him uh, Christ, the Messiah, um, which is a term that they understood from the Old Testament. And then so they, they understood what he said, and the Holy Spirit regenerated. Um, there, was a, there were 3,000 people who were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life and were added to the church that day through the sermon that the, the Holy Spirit had Peter preached that day in a certain way to a certain audience. Um, so in Acts chapter 2, this is another cartoon I stole from uh, AIG, um, they have a certain foundation. The audience has a foundation. They know God the Creator. They know about man and sin and death and, and the, the, the consequences of sin from Genesis chapter 3. They know all that. They have this foundation already in place. And so Peter doesn't have to explain all that. He knows they have that foundation, and he can go straight to Christ crucified and resurrected. He doesn't have to lay the foundation that's already there um, in his Jewish audience. However, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block. They stumble over the fact that the Messiah is killed because what was the Jewish expectation for this anointed one? He was David's descendant. He was going to take David's throne. He was going to kick the Romans out. They had a certain expectation and Dead on a cross was not it. That was a stumbling block to the Jewish audience. So he adds this, uh, not only is Christ crucified, but resurrected. God raised him from the dead in power. Um, That's what he adds on top of their foundation already there of creator. Uh, So that's one sermon. Very effective. A certain audience. Um, The sermon is crafted by the Holy Spirit to be able to reach that audience. Now let's take a look at a totally different audience with a totally different worldview. So Paul's sermon at the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17. So turn up to Acts chapter 17. Um, And so who was the audience in Acts chapter 17? So he's in Athens. Athens was the cultural capital of the world going back centuries. Um... No city in the world had more idols than Athens. There was a Roman consul named Petronius who left this uh, in his writings. It is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. That's how many gods they had. Uh, They sought after wisdom. Of course, this uh, earthly wisdom would never lead to the true god. So what else does it say about the audience? So if you get to... um, Acts chapter 17, verse 18, we get this description. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, conversing with Paul. So part of his audience was definitely Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. So... Who are these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? So Epicureans were followers of Epicurus, who had died about 300 years before this. So he died in about 270 B.C. This is, uh, you know, about 50 
um, AD. Paul's talking at the Areopagus during his second missionary journey, somewhere around 50 AD. So uh, he's been dead for over 300 years, but he still has followers in Athens. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed that there were all these gods, but they were uninvolved, sort of like the deists believed. Um, Similar to the secularist, uh, the chief good, according to the Epicureans, consisted in gratification of appetites. Pleasure was the only end in life. That was the Epicureans. What about the Stoics? They followed a philosopher named Zeno, who had also been dead for over 300 years. They used to meet in a place called Stoa in Athens, thus the Stoics. Uh, Man should be free from passion, moved by neither joy nor grief, pleasure nor pain. Um, we get the the English word stoic, stoicism, stoic, to be stoic from this philosophy. They believed in gods, but that all human affairs were governed solely by fate. They believed that there was a divine spark in all, similar to today's New Age thinkers. So this is the audience. And so how does Paul, prompted by the Holy Spirit, approach this audience? And I want you to notice how it's different from how the Holy Spirit has Peter address the audience in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 17, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So where does Paul start? So first he addresses his audience. It's the men of Athens. It's these people with a Greek worldview. But first he starts with explaining who God is. Peter didn't have to explain that to the Jewish audience. They knew who he was. This audience, they need to know who in the world is this God that Paul's talking about. Uh, He explains who he is. He's the God that made the whole world. He goes back to creation, back to Genesis 1. This is the God who made the world. He needs to explain the true history of the world from Genesis 1 to these people. Peter didn't have to do that in Acts chapter 2. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's in charge. He's sovereign over this whole creation. And he also made people. And he he gives a very brief description of what we learned in Genesis 1 to 11, that from one man, he made all the nations of people. He explains that. Peter didn't have to explain that to the Jews. They knew all that, uh, that he was talking to in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 17, Paul needs to explain He needs to go back to creation. He needs to go back to Genesis 1 to 11 and explain who this God is. This is the God who made everything and he made people and people are all descended from one man that God made. And that's who all people are. Yes. Well, um, we don't know for sure, um, but it would have been certainly not clearly enough for them to understand really what Paul, so Paul needed to make some details here. Okay. And so he goes back to these details about who God is first, who people are second, and then he brings in Jesus once he's done that. Um, and so uh, then in verse 30, uh, Paul goes on, he says, Therefore, 
Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So um, after he's explained who God is and who people are, he goes to judgment, the judgment for sin. He has fixed a day in which he will judge. And that judgment will be through a man who God has appointed. So this creator, the one who created heavens and earth, and is the Lord of heavens and earth, and he created people, he's going to judge sin, and he's going to judge through a man who he's appointed. And he's furnished proof that this is the man that God has appointed by raising him from the dead. So who's he talking about? He's obviously talking about Jesus here. Um, And he's explaining um, the resurrection and the fact that the resurrection is God's stamp or seal of approval that Jesus is the one through whom he's going to judge the world. That's what Paul says to this group of Greeks that have no background, or very little background anyway, on who the God of the Bible is. So some began to sneer. Resurrection of the dead, yeah, 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 right. So somebody came back, somebody dead, and came back to life. Yeah, right, sneer, sneer, giggle, giggle. Um, but some joined him and believed. And so as a result of this particular sermon that the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to give, the Holy Spirit also regenerated people, people from spiritual death to spiritual life. Based on this sermon, uh, the Holy Spirit also used to bring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So in Acts chapter 17... If, if Paul had just said God, then what, what mental picture would his audience have given? Does he mean Zeus? Does he mean Aphrodite? Does he mean Poseidon? They had all these gods. And so he couldn't just say God. He needed to explain who he was talking about. Peter didn't need to do that in Acts chapter 2 with the Jewish audience. Paul needed to do that because if he just said God, just said the word God, the word picture wouldn't have been right. The mental picture they got wouldn't have been right. He needed to clarify. Uh, I want to give a modern example. Um, so in if you go to Japan today, the, the Japanese word for God is kami. And if you go to a, the a ordinary, regular Japanese person and say the word kami, they, don't, they won't necessarily form a word picture of the God of the Bible. That word kami in Japanese doesn't generally mean the God of the Bible. It does for Christians, of course, but for uh, an unregenerate, general run-of-the-mill person in Japan, that word kami in Japanese doesn't conjure up the God of the Bible. It conjures up all kinds of other stuff (laughs) from Japanese history and tradition. Um, So, and the same thing with the word sin, it's not going to work in a culture like Japan. Anyway, so in general... In somebody that's got a worldview that's not based on uh, the truths of the Bible, 
the the gospel is foolishness, especially the part about somebody coming back from the dead, somebody dying, dying, you know, being executed on a Roman uh, cross two thousand years ago, and then coming back from the dead. That's all foolishness to the um, the secular, the general secular humanist mindset that's represented by the Greek way of thinking in Acts chapter seventeen. That's foolishness. So to the Jews, it was a stumbling block that their Messiah would be killed. To the Greeks, it's foolishness that somebody dying on the cross 2,000 years ago uh, would, would mean anything. And, oh, by the way, people don't come back from the dead. And so that's, that's all foolishness. So what does Peter do? Peter says, well, let's, go, let's start from the beginning. We need to go back and see who this God is and what the history of mankind is. We need to go back to Genesis, which is what he does. He talks about God as creator talks about people being all descended from one man. Let's start from the beginning uh, with that particular worldview. And so in Acts chapter 17, he needs to first replace the foundation that they have, many gods, um, um, with one God who made everything and is the Lord of heaven and earth, as Paul put it in Acts chapter 17. That foundation needs to be replaced first, and so that's what Paul does first. Peter doesn't have to do that. That foundation is already there for those who know who God, the God of the Bible is. For those who don't, you need to replace that foundation first before you can even get started. And that's what Paul does in Acts chapter 17. And so, in the world today, in our world today, what do we see? We see mostly this kind of Greek or Gentile worldview where if you, if you just say, repent, Jesus died for your sins, that's foolishness to most who we will be addressing in the 21st century world. Well, so where do they get, where do they get their foundation from? Uh, well, it's the whole secular culture, education, media, everything, is telling everybody that evolution is true, that people are the product of blind evolutionary chance, it's goo to you via the zoo, um, you, you're just evolved animals. Um, that's the foundation that most people in our world today have. Um, and that has consequences. We talked about that. And so, in, in many cases, even people that, um, that go to church, they, they get Bible stories in church, but then when they go to school, they get real history. See, see what I'm saying there? So this happens even within the church. People nod their heads and, and they get Bible stories, um, but that's on Sunday, but then uh, Monday through Saturday... They, they go to school and they learn from not just school, but also everything that's in movies and everything that's, that's in, in media and our culture is telling them that the real history is uh, that we're evolved animals. Uh, yes. That's very good, and I think we really need to be intentional about that in our education of our kids within the church. Uh, understand that the Bible gives us true history, what really happened. The, the things that happened in Genesis 1-11 to are... Uh, are true. They, they really happened in real space-time history, um, and that if somebody tries to teach them something different than what they're trying to teach, which is contrary to the Bible, is wrong. It's objectively false. Uh, <laughs> and that they need to, we need to train people in the church from, from childhood to be able to detect those things 
and to recognize them as falsehoods? So that's a, a great question. So what do you do? So does, it, does the public school teacher get to choose the curriculum, the textbook? No. You know, public school teachers don't get to choose their, and from the, for the most part, don't get to choose the textbooks that they use. Um, so you, you, can't, you can't say, uh, um, if you're a biology teacher, you can't say, I'm not going to teach evolution. I think that would be a mistake anyway. I think kids need to know the theory of evolution. Um, because there's so many things wrong with it. There's so many things that are obviously contrary to evidence that you can show, but you need to learn it to be able to see that it's false. Um, but yeah, you don't get to choose, as a public school teacher, you don't get to choose the textbook that you use, you don't get to choose the curriculum that you're, uh, you're going to teach. Um, so as a public school teacher, what can you do? Well, you can... Uh, to the best of your ability, teach what is true. However, in many settings, that's that's not allowed either. Yeah. So, I mean, is, is anybody here a public school teacher that can give that can give any um, um, insight into what you are allowed to do? Yeah. So, I mean, and they kicked them out for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think generally you should. Um, in, in whatever walk of life you're in, you should try to present the truth, God's truth, in any poss any way you can. Uh, if that's just with one-on-one -on -one interactions, then that's with one-on-one -on -one interactions. So uh, with the other teachers, for example, um, you could say, hey, I don't believe that this is who people are. People are not evolved animals. They're created by God. So, yeah, so I, I taught physics at the academy, and so um, I can... You, so most of physics, of course, has nothing to do with uh, spiritual issues. However, um, there are some issues in cosmology that do come up. And I can remember having some very interesting con uh, conversations with uh, my fellow professors, in, including one Christian. Uh, there was a Christian physicist. He was an uh, astronomer. And uh, he made a statement to me that, uh, well, I, I can't, I can't approach, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to approach astronomy um, as a Christian. I have to lay that aside. And I told him, no, you can't do that. You, that's not, that, brother, please don't do that. Don't set aside your Christianity in order to study astronomy. Um, and he paused, and, and I think he got it, but, but that had been kind of his mindset coming up through his PhD. He was a PhD astronomy guy. Uh, and he was a devout believer, but he had like this, um, he had this divide here, where on Sunday he got Bible stories, and then he was a PhD uh, astronomer, uh, astronomy guy, Monday through Saturday, and, um, and I told him, please don't, don't do that, your, your Christianity should inform everything you do, including your astronomy, yeah, so there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting, um, issues that you can bring up with somebody who's a believer in evolution and of course they have answers they have their you know the the fossil record is incomplete and therefore it's missing and you know we we would expect it to be there except the the fossil record is so spotty that those, those uh, intermediary forms are missing because we haven't found them yet we'll find them but we haven't found them yet but we will but the fossil record is very incomplete and once we've got it all filled in that they'll all be there 
that's the kind of it's the kind of faith that they have in, in evolution. Yeah. So he he was kind of um, he was doing what a lot of people do um, in it's a postmodern way of looking at things that he had a separation in his brain where uh, what Francis Schaeffer calls the upper story and lower story. The the upper story is spiritual things, lower story is worldly things, and there's a wall there that separates them and they don't uh, interact. So on Sunday I come and I, I, I switch off my brain and I go to church and I hear uh, spiritual things. And then on Monday through Saturday, I'm back in the real world um, and I, I look at things from a, a secular view. And what I'm saying is that's not okay, that, that, you, that you're, there is no difference between Sunday and Monday through Saturday and that, um, that the truth from the Bible applies to not just Sunday, but Monday through Saturday and everything in life. And uh, so we need to see everything in life through a biblical lens. Your job and your your relationships with other people, everything through a biblical lens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, yes. Yeah. So persecution makes it, uh, uh, makes it, there's a cost. There's a cost from living your Christian life Monday through Saturday, there's a cost to that. And, you know, as human beings, we don't, we shy away from uh, pain and, and suffering and things like that. And uh, the Bible has some pretty stark passages about uh, embracing suffering for Christ. Um, and those are not popular passages uh, most, most of the time. Yes. <clears throat> right, that's right. So, yeah, this is not going anywhere. Um, the... Uh, you know, the, the secular worldview is not going to um, evaporate. evaporate. It's not going to say, oh, uh, my bad, I was, I was wrong about all this. That's not going to happen. It's going to be in our face for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Now, of course, the, the Holy Spirit could, um, I mean, there, it's possible for there to be revivals that really change cultures. That is possible. Uh, but absent that, then we, we've got this to deal with, and it's going to be something we're going to have to deal with. All right, so, uh, and so what does First Peter chapter 3 tell us? Uh, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And so um, this is the idea that if somebody asks you, somebody asks you, well, what do you believe? You need to be ready. We need to be ready to say what we believe and be bold about what we believe. But... In gentleness and respect. So it's not going to do any good to, um, to beep somebody about the head and shoulders uh, uh, rhetorically about any of this. That doesn't do anybody any good. It has to be done in gentleness and respect. But we need to be ready with an answer when somebody asks, because they will. Eventually, somewhere along the line, they're going to ask, well, what do you believe? So are, are you ready? Are you ready for that? <coughs> so <coughs> the Bible, of course, has answers. Uh, for all these things, uh, and we need to be ready with those answers from Scripture, and we have, need to have an internalized biblical worldview where we understand we have this firm foundation of who God is, who we are as human beings, who all the other human beings are that we're going to be talking to, who they are. Uh, that's the background of foundation for how we address them, what we're going to say to them has to have this foundation from the Bible. And so um, we can start with, let me tell you about the true history of the world. You know, this idea of who you are, you're, you're not worthless. You know, we, we've got, there's a terrible problem. I, I, um, 
I just read a couple of articles yesterday about uh, teenage girls in American culture today. The suicide rate is is just skyrocketing. It's the it's the leading cause of death for teenage girls right now. It's suicide. Um, there is hopelessness out there, um, and so going back to Genesis and and just telling people who they are as 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 being created by a loving creator who created you in, in his image and therefore you are of such high value uh, just telling a teenage girl that who knows what impact you could have on the life of that person uh, by telling her that but I, I was just amazed by this article that I read yesterday about the suicide rate among American teenage girls just unbelievable anyway uh, but we have there's there's hope in this the the Bible story. There's hope, and so we need to be ready to give an answer to the hope that is in us, um, and portray it in such a way that they understand how they are loved. You know, that's that's one of the great stories of the Bible is that people that you're you were created by a loving Creator that that cares about you, um, and I think that many in our culture need to hear that. Now, as a as a, in a that's an, an emergency need of many in our culture is to hear just that you're created by a loving God who loves you, um, just as a starting point. Okay, um, so in 21st American secular worldview, um, um, if you tell an unbeliever that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, and he responds by saying, "Which God are you talking about, and what do you mean by sin, and why would someone have to die for it?" Uh, so. Uh, so, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. That's the gospel. So you've just presented the gospel, and the and the response is this, something like this. So what do you do? Uh, where do you go to show that person answers for his questions? Well, Genesis one to eleven is where you need to start. They they don't have any kind of background about who God is, who they are as a creation of His, created in His image, and fallen because of sin, and therefore in need of salvation. All those things or background that need to be explained to that person before the, the phrase, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, will make any sense to, to him. And so, essentially in the 21st, American, uh, 21st century America, we have a Greek worldview. The culture is the, more like the Greek culture that Paul encountered in Athens than the Jewish culture that Peter encountered in Acts chapter 2. So maybe a hundred years ago in America, everybody knew if you said the word God, everybody would think of the God of the Bible. Maybe a hundred years ago. Not today. Not today. And they don't have a, maybe a hundred years ago <coughs> in the general culture, everybody knew who Jesus was, knew that he died on the cross for sins. And if you said that phrase, everybody would at least know what you were talking about. Today, that's not the case. And so we need to have an approach that, that uh, takes into account the, the audience. And the Bible shows that that's exactly how the early apostles did, that, that Peter did not use the same kind of sermon in Acts 2 as Paul used in Acts chapter 17. Yes. Yeah, so that's right. And so notice in Acts chapter 17, Peter gets to... Um, Jesus' death, resurrection, and judgment for sin. He, he gets to judgment for sin in that sermon. Um, the, the problem 
as you point out with pre-evangelism, if it never gets to sin, the problem of sin, then there's never going to be any um, understanding of the need for salvation. And so um, you're absolutely right. You, you do need to land the plane. Um, you, you need to be able to... So if, if there's a teenager in crisis that's con- con- contemplating suicide, they need to hear that they're created by a loving God first. But they still eventually need salvation. I mean, if you can keep them from committing suicide, that gives you time to get to the point where they understand that they're a sinner in need of salvation. But you do need to get there. You can't just, you can't just tell people that God loves them um, because you, you'll never get to the point where they understand that that you also are separated from that loving God by your sin, and you need Christ to reconcile you to that God. Yes, Rachel. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. So, yes, I think you need to start there. You need to do this pre-evangelism, but you, you need to go all the way. Um, now, um, it's not necessarily the case that one person will do the whole thing. So it could be that Paul plants the seed, Apollos waters, and it's the Holy Spirit that gives the... Um, you may be the person that intervenes to save somebody from suicide, and somebody else is the one that ends up giving them the rest. Now, um, if you have an opportunity, I think that you, you have an obligation to go the whole way and tell the whole gospel to somebody if you have the opportunity. But that won't always be the case. Uh, but you should always have in your mind where I want to get. I want to get to the place where I can explain the need for salvation, the, the, the fact that sin separates us from a holy God, and the only way to reconcile that to that holy God is through Christ Jesus. You want to get there. But if you start there, if you start with God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, and the person says, what do you mean by sin, and which God do you mean, and, you know, you need to start somewhere, uh, I think, and but not but not uh, but not use it as an excuse not to get to the final gospel. Don't use it as an excuse, but don't but but understand that you may need to do some pre-evangelism before you can get there. Okay, very good. Okay, uh, let me close this in prayer.